Yes. Welcome to the 106 Chat Podcast, discussing the sorry state of Reading FC. If you're looking for a happy-go-lucky podcast, this probably isn't for you. However, if you're looking for an insight into the shambles that is the current situation at Reading FC, this is hopefully something that will be a bit more up your street. I'm joined by Hugh, an accountant and member of the podcast. Hi Hugh, how are you? Evening Tom, yeah, not too bad, thanks. It's uh, it's good to have football back, if I'm honest. I, it's, it's been well, it's been a good summer having the Euros at least to watch, but we got league football back. Just a shame we can eat, at least get a point up at Stoke, and that's probably as much as we will uh, discuss the Stoke game, really, isn't it? For sure. There's been a lot more news since that Stoke game, of course, and unfortunately a lot of it does involve the arguments that have been occurring over on Twitter. So... Just to start off the podcast, as said, introducing yourself as an accountant. Hopefully you can shed a bit more light with the financials of the club. And we will, of course, be going on to discuss the EFL silence, fan movements and what would be next for the club. So regarding the finances and everything surrounding transfers, wages and so on, one of the bigger questions on Twitter from Reading fans as of late has been why hasn't the releasing of players acted to solve our situation? Yeah, so if you look, the kind of the ratio that gets quoted a lot is uh, the income to wages expenditure that in 1920, so at the end of 1920, was 211%. So to put that in context, because I know I'm going to be saying things like wages to expenditure ratio, things like that, people are just going to go, oh, I've got a clue what you're on about. So to put it in blunt terms... For every one pound the club makes, they spend two pound eleven of that on first team players, not anything else. And you've got to remember, with a football club as well, there's so much more to pay. You've got the managers, the coaches, you've got the tea lady, you've got the accountants who work for Reading, you've got the people who make a match day happen. All these other people to pay that don't even come into that ratio, and then you're not. You've got other expenditure as well, the maintenance of things like a training ground. So before you even consider the fact that as a business, Reading FC has all these other people to pay, just on players alone, it was 211%. So yes, we released Bulldog and Luco, and I've no doubt that they were among the highest earners. I still believe that due to some of the Gourlay contracts, and I'm not going to try and quote what specific players are on because while they probably won't listen anyway I don't want to get kind of players quoting us being like actually I don't earn that much you're completely misguided but I think we can assume there are certain players still in the squad who were given quite nice contracts by Ron Gourlay that it's still going to be that ratio and also you've got to remember that ratio of 211% is income against the wages Reading don't make money. We don't sell players. We don't generate income. Our income pretty much purely recently has come from loans from the dies and football ticket sales. So to give you an idea, say Sam Baldock is on 20 grand a week, right? As an example, I don't know, Sam, if you're listening, what you were on at Reading. We're just talking, throwing numbers out here. For an entire year, that works out as just over a million pounds. Say Reading have 8,000 adult season ticket holders at £350 a ticket. To do the maths there, which I should have prepared earlier, but 8,000 times by 350 equals 2.8 million 
which is a lot of money, but that's just two players' contracts. Then that'd be a Luke on Bulldogs contract, and that's from all your season ticket holders for the entire year. You sell adult tickets at twenty quid a game. We only have about fourteen thousand on average in the stadium. That doesn't even come close to covering how much we pay in wages. So. The idea that kind of of the, the good old days, back in the good old days where you get play where you get fans, sorry, shout from the terraces, I pay your wages. You don't anymore. You might have back in the day when players weren't on that much, but right now we we barely touch on how much they are. We could buy I mean, it is a good thing we have released an absolute classic of a shirt this year, because hopefully they'll generate a little bit more income, but the the shirt really is the only thing to be positive on at the moment. And until we can raise that income, the issue is to be sustainable as a business, you can't just rely on owners. I mean, I don't know if you've seen as well, Tom, but there have been people ask the question, well, so what if Dai just gives us money? Like, why why does it matter? Why are we being punished if Dai wants to give us money? Well, what happens when Dayong gets bored. So the way Reading is structured at the moment, a lot of the debt is owed to Dai Young. So um I'll I'll throw the question to you, Tom. Do you have you seen about the kind of sales of certain assets of the club to to the Dai's in recent times? Of course. You know, like the ground for instance, if I'm not wrong, mm-hmm. uh, Bearwood Park, you know, yep. it's a lot of things that are currently weighing against us. I don't know, just to touch on, of course, you know, like you mentioned, scrapping those wages is a massive benefit, but at the same time, it doesn't even begin to to scratch the surface. Even mm, if we just you know, change the viewpoint and just look at the transfer fees at this moment in time, you know, for Aluko, he played, paid roughly around, what, £7 million, Bulldog £3 yep. million, McNulty £2 million, Pushkas £6 million. And with Pushkas, I can, you know, in all fairness, he had a solid under-21 European Championship campaign just before joining us, but... None of these have gone on to set the world alight at Reading. And, you know, with our current outlook, it's it's just not sustainable to spend that amount of money on a player who isn't guaranteed to kick on in the championship. And, you know, we find ourselves where we are now, where we're quite literally looking at the bottom of our pockets, trying to find a bit of change here, there, everywhere mm. from, you know, getting rid of the likes of Bulldog and Aluko. But it's, I don't know, it's, it's just, it's terrible, isn't it? I don't see how we can get out of this situation. Well, because it's about being sustainable. The kind of the championship, well, no longer championship example I've always looked at as being the kind of beacon of how to be a sustainable club is Brentford. You look at Brentford, and yes, some of their signings were worth big money, but they never held them back. Football, a lot of the time, is about realising, unless you are Barcelona or Real Madrid, there is a bigger fish out there than you. Like, Players are going to want to leave to join another club. And Brentford never stood in the way. So they could always reinvest the money they made from sales into getting the next player. And yes, they were lucky with some of them. Well, depends luck or top quality scouting. But you can scout a player till the cows come home and it doesn't mean they're going to hit the ground running. But bloody hell did Ivan Tony hit the ground running last season. But the point is they can sell Ollie Watkins for 25 million and their scouting team was saying, don't worry, give us 12 million. We'll get Ivan Tony. And they've made a 13 million pound profit there. Reading for a while under Stam and Tevreden, 
I felt like we'd finally turned a corner and we were looking to build something special. The signings we were making logically made sense. We were bringing in some experienced heads for kind of free transfers and you'd hope not too high wages. You're Joey Vandenberg's uh, Roy Behrens, who became the spine of the team, but also your Liam Moores for one million from Leicester, uh, John Swift on a free from Chelsea. And you genuinely thought about these players. If we don't, if we sell them, if we don't go up, fine, bring someone in to replace them. I trusted Brian Teverden to be able to do that. He seemed like a very knowledgeable person for scouting. And a lot of the transfers, I know there was some weird ones like Sandro Weiser. Um, but a lot of the transfers that summer made sense. And if you think, had we sold Liam Moore to Brighton when they were after him for a rumoured 10, 12 million, depending on who you believe, that would have been a nine million pound profit. There's your income. As we said, season ticket sales making 2.8. The sale of one player could have been four times that amount. So this is where you need to think that's how a football club makes money in the modern era by selling off their best players and you replace them as we've seen recently don't get me wrong I like Liam Moore as a player he puts his heart into the club yes there have been moments he's had like that Wigan one where he's jogging back in the last minute and they get the kind of easiest of finishes but he's replaceable every player in that team if you have the money to look for a replacement and you have a good scouting department as Brentford have shown not once in the last few seasons did Brentford ever massively drop off? Yet every summer, they sold their best player without fail. Ben Rama left, Watkins left. In previous seasons to that, you had like Scott Hogan, Andre Gray. They all left and every year Brentford improved. Yet when you hear Reading fans talk about us not selling a player, it's like, oh my God, thank God we didn't sell him. How would we cope without? You do, because all of a sudden, you've got 10 million, say, from selling Liam Moore, Five million goes into the club of here's your day-to-day running of business. Another five million goes to the transfer department and says, right, go out and find me the next best young centre-back who in two, three seasons' time, someone else will be looking to buy. But no, instead, what we do is we don't let anyone have our key players or anything. We then abandon that model of looking for talented young players the following summer when we get a kind of sniff of the Premier League because we were one penalty away and you look at I mean I know we made a profit actually as we've just seen on Leandro Bakuna but the other signings that summer Bodvarsson to replace Kermigan, uh Edwards in midfield Aluko, Mo Barrow how were we ever going to make a profit on those Vito Minone for two million there was no sustainability at all that went into that summer. It was just spend, spend off of big contracts. It truly was the kind of Ron Gourlay summer that set the ball rolling for kind of the oncoming Reading issues. You listen to, um, I mean, the Tyler Sten did a brilliant podcast with Brian Teverden where he pretty much could barely hide his, his dislike of um, a previous CEO that we had. And you can you can see this man ruined Reading and we're still paying for it now because all these players I've just listed, Dave Edwards spent one and a half million on him, went on a free transfer. Aluko, we spent seven and a half million for a couple of decent performances 
and then he's left on a free transfer. Even Bulldog the following season, three and a half million, and he's gone now on a free transfer. McNulty, one and a half million. Can't even sell the guy. I mean, like, no, yeah. can't even send him out on loan at the moment. Of That's course, not sustainable. Of course, hindsight's now 20, uh, 2020, but even just looking back at, you know, these seasons where we have spent an incredible amount of money, it's been very short-sighted, of course. And if I just mm. try and make a real-life comparison, I'd say it's probably similar to popping down to the bookies with your life savings in your pocket. And say, for instance, you're thinking to yourself, right, I'm going to put a quarter of my life savings on something that's absolutely guaranteed to come in here. Like, I don't know, for instance, into Milan to beat Sampdoria. And then when that doesn't pay off, you start thinking, oh, God, what's next? What's next? And the next move <laughs> at that point, typically with the gambling mentality is to then go, right, you know what? I'm going to put double that amount down now on something else which should happen. And when that doesn't come in, you know, you find yourself in a situation that we are now where constantly season upon season we've gone so hard to get promotion and when we've not reached those heights you know we've ended up in a situation now where we can't sign anyone we're wondering what's going to go on and we're dependent on youth academy players it's it's insane really but it it kind of leads me on to the next question i've seen popping up on twitter too so obviously we recently lost michael elise to crystal palace for eight million pounds a lot of people have wondered how far has that gone in terms of solving the issue well, it's it's barely scratched the surface, if I'm honest, Tom. I mean, as we've seen reported, we have debt of 93 million to the dies, and that is money that one day they might decide to come calling for. Now, eight million barely shaves anything off of that. It's it's taking it down to what an 85 million debt, and every single Reading fan is lying to themselves if they think Elise shouldn't have gone for more than eight million. We saw Eze go from QPR to Palace, who was three years older, I believe, four years older, for 15 to 18 million, wasn't it rumoured to be for Eze? So in Elise, they've got a younger player who had pretty much just as good a season as Eze did at Palace. And we all know, everyone who's watched Elise last season knows that his ceiling is Champions League. If he hits his full potential, Crystal Palace could be selling him for £50 million. They're, they're currently doing the kind of Premier League level because, as I said, with there being a bigger fish, Crystal Palace know if Arsenal, Tottenham, Chelsea, Liverpool come in for one of their players... They're not holding on to them. The player will ask to leave because, let's be honest, if you you don't have a long career as a footballer, if you get the chance to sign for one of the top English clubs, you're going to want to take it. And so, Elise, we could see, if he has a couple of good seasons for Palace, we could easily see Liverpool snapping him up for £40 million. So, to think that Crystal Palace have got him for £8 million is crazy. Richards going for nothing... Thierry Neves going for nothing is insane when you think that the whole we spend money on our academy. You've got to remember the academy as well, as I was discussing earlier about expenditure is another expense to the club. The day to day running of the academy, hiring coaches for the academy, like paying for the massive training ground complex for it. All of these things, they're not free. It's like you you have to buy the raw materials to build the training ground up. You pay the contractors, all, all of these things. It's all just money, money, money after one thing after another. So what you should want from an academy, yes, it should be able to provide for your first team. Don't get me wrong, the sole purpose is not just selling players. But at the same time, 
if your academy has running costs of a million a year, you sell a Guilfi Sigurdsson as an example for seven million or a Michael Lease for eight million, that's paid for the academy for a while. But you want to churn out those players, some of whom you will sell, but you just think, so why are you prioritizing but getting in players who are well past it or in their prime, as opposed to being able to offer contracts to just players who you can see. And where are the talent scouts within the club? I know people like to say, oh, well, we didn't know Richards was going to be that good when we had Blackett and a beater on the books too. It's like, where's the talent scouts? Who's Where's the person behind the scenes saying, this kid is special? get him tied down quick because we clearly couldn't offer him a contract because we'd spent all the money under Gomez as well. When they lifted that EFL embargo, we went to town, didn't we? I mean, I, do you want to reel off the stats on, on that Gomez summer where the embar- we had the embargo and then it was lifted for a week? I, I remember that at the time because, you know, there was just such hysteria about having this level of supposed level of player joining us. We were thinking, right, that promotion sealed. And, you know, I think we're as guilty as anyone else is, you know, of um, almost believing that it's nailed on at this point. We're definitely going to be going up. You know, we've got such great players in. We've got George Pushkas, who, again, as I said earlier on, came in around seven million pounds. Lucas Shaw, I believe, around five million. And then the likes of Raphael, who's going to be on a pretty penny, let's be honest. Charlie Adam. Mm. Michael Morrison and quite a few others you know it was a lot of players that came in around that time and I, I really don't know it's, it's just it's insane to think that we didn't make anything of that season um, mm. and also insane to think that you know we almost blindly blindly walked into this and didn't expect what has now become of us you know we're in a situation where you know like touched on earlier on we can't sign anyone and we're sitting here mm. really wondering what's going to come of the season or are you going to get relegated and it leads on to that possibility of potentially seeing, you know, a die walk away from the club and no longer being a club. If I'm not wrong, he's done it on two other occasions, once with a Chinese club and another with a Belgian. So yep. what's to say that that's not going to happen for us? No, absolutely. It is worrying because, and this is, so I'd reference back to the Zingarevich era as well. When an owner gets bored of a club, and this is why the EFL, EFL rules exist, because it's not just to punish, it is to protect as well what we've seen with owners in the past is it's a plaything to them these are multi-billionaires they have amounts of money we can't even imagine but the money is owed to them this becomes like a plaything for them to be able to say when they're meeting with other billionaires this is my club look what they've achieved this year if you're achieving nothing it's not really something to show off it's like talking about that kid who finished eighth in the school gymnastics so well good for you mate kind of like what what's the achievement there right now owning reading fc probably amongst kind of fellow owners isn't that kind of bigger talking thing to say about because we're not doing anything and in the past owners and i know this is a very kind of blase way to look at it for some clubs but for want of a better way of putting it they've got bored and they've just gone i'm putting all my money into this and what am i getting out of it so this is why it's called profit and sustainability. The key word being the sustainability, making the club self-sufficient, not reliant on one man's money. Yes, it's fine. If Di wants to give us money right now, that's absolutely fine. What happens when one year, two years down the line, he goes, you know what, I've had enough of this. The club's not going anywhere. 
I'm just hemorrhaging money into the club. I'm walking away. You end up with a Zingarovic situation. No one's paying the wages. We were so lucky when Zingarovic decided to do a runner that Medeski was still connected in with the club. He essentially lost his own personal fortune to be able to support Reading FC. And all fans should forever be grateful to John Medeski for that. Because, yes, we had to sell Lafondra for, um, to pay a tax bill and things like that. But without Medeski that season, there probably wouldn't be a Reading football club because essentially we had debts that weren't going to be paid by Zingarevich. They're not being paid by me and you. We can't afford to do that. Our, as we've discussed, our season tickets, they weren't paying Royston Drente's wages and things like that. So you end up with a situation where you have to kind of sell the club. And that's why we were so desperately looking for the for new owners. And thankfully, the ties came in. But the point I'd make now as well is, so let me use a kind of analogy of, say you work in a cafe and you need someone to kind of fund your work. And I say, okay, here's some money. I might give you a hand turning it around to make it profitable for itself. And what I'll do to help kind of raise some money is I'll buy the assets off of you. So like I buy things like the oven and, fit and the, I buy the property itself that you have. That's what the Dyes have been doing. They own the training ground, not Reading Football Club. The Dye Company, whatever it's called, I can't remember now, own our training ground. They own the stadium. They've just sold the naming rights to it. So if you are a prospective buyer looking to buy Reading FC from them, if you just buy the club, you're just getting that title of, yes, I own the club, but you don't own the stadium. What you'll end up having to do, and this is what... Reading FC, the business. So to you have to think, and this is kind of going back to accounting stuff here. You have to separate Reading FC, the business, and the dies as a business. These are two separate entities now that are kind of constantly throwing money to each other. The dies have a lot of money. Reading FC loses money on a weekly basis of extortionate amounts. We're losing about. £91,000 a week, I think I read earlier, which is just in an insane... We can't even imagine these figures, is how crazy the numbers are. So it's like if the dies walk away and say they want to sell the club, someone else could buy the title to be the owner of Reading FC, but then the stadium is still owned by the dies. So you're going to have to pay rent to the dies unless you buy the stadium off of them as well. And you'll have to buy the training ground off of them. And is this making sense? So it's like they own all these things. So if someone else wants to take it off them, these are all the things they have to buy. And they have to buy the debt off of them. Because if the dies walk away, you'd best believe they want that £90 million. They're not, they're not giving this out of just the kindness of their heart. This is business. This is the real world. We're looking at, I know people want to say, oh, but the performances on the pitch are looking good. It doesn't matter if we don't have money how good the performances are looking on the pitch. Because I can tell you for sure, if wages stop getting paid one day, those players who have mortgages, who have kids to feed, are not going to care about putting in a performance on a Saturday. Because this is what happens. You always see each year, the clubs that are struggling near the bottom tend to be ones 
with financial issues because how do you go out on a pitch if you it's same as in the real world i mean i'll ask this to anyone who's listening it's like we'll have all gone into work one day where we're having issues at home or something's going on in our lives and you're not functioning the same it's exactly the same with football if you're wondering when your paycheck is even coming i can tell you for sure the team that doesn't have to worry about when their paycheck is coming they're going to win 99 times out of 100 the team like that is going to win and so if the dies walk away and they want that 90 million being paid to them that is not an attractive prospect to any buyer coming in because you don't want to buy something even if someone comes in as they did with the ties and bought the place for a pound we were lucky Madeski just wrote off the debt and said, it's fine. I love the club. Like, don't worry about the debts to me. If the dies walked away, that's not going to happen because what's their connection to Reading FC? Of course. And, you know, my educated guess, I suppose, at this point would have been that their end goal perhaps would have been for us to become a Premier League side, relatively sustainable, not getting relegated, you know, similar to like a Southampton build or something like that. And then they could sell it on for profit at that point. But obviously that's not going to come to fruition at this point. And, you know, it's just a concern for us what's going to come of our club going forward. And just to now move on to the silence, so to speak, from the EFL and just this general not knowingness of what's going on inside the world of Reading and whether we can sign players. You know, it's it's a crazy situation because we consider for one minute that on Twitter, we're seeing different reports of, oh, Reading have been given permission to sign six players on eight and a half grand a week. But then our own manager, Pounder, is coming out and telling us that, no, we've heard absolutely nothing from the EFL. It's it's mm. a really strange situation to be in. And, you know, looking at the players that we've missed out on now, it's Lazar, Kyle Edwards. And by no means am I saying that, that, you know, they'd solve our problem. But we're missing out on more and more players as time goes on. And I, I'm just thinking going mm. forward realistically as supporters what we should have in my opinion at least anyway is is a direct line of communication with not necessarily die but just someone from the top down just to tell us what their intentions are what they're planning going forward because right now you know it doesn't take too much common sense at all to to realize it doesn't look like a great prospect and what, what is what's actually going on it's, it's really difficult mm. to try and decipher it from from my perspective i'd imagine the exact same for you so what would you want to see from either the EFL, the club, say in the next few weeks? Because the transfer window isn't going to be lasting too long. No, and I guess one of the things you can see on the EFL website is just embargo because profit and sustainability rules have been breached. That's it. We know in the past um, there had been this thing of, I think it was last summer, wasn't it? The EFL basically had to sign off on any transfers we made. They had to just kind of put a tick in the box, say, yes, this is fine, we accept that this is within the rules. But there's just been no statement either way. And it, it's concerning because when Nigel Howe was CEO, you still felt there was that line of communication. I don't know if you saw, but the former uh, Reading Chronicle reporter, uh, uh, Anthony Smith, tweeted out earlier that whenever... Madeski and Howe were in charge he could just give them a phone call didn't mean they'd always be honest with him but they'd give him the time of day right now and I know fans joke about it and say oh are you gonna just are you gonna get die on your podcast obviously we're not we're just two Reading fans having a chat about it but can we not all even agree that it would be good to hear from the owners it's almost like if you care about these things it almost becomes like 
you're a negative fan that people would almost rather bury their heads in the sand and just talk about how the match went on Saturday. It's like, no, yes, we're being negative here because the situation currently is negative. We can't, we had trialists essentially just to make up numbers. All we've done is raise their preseason fitness so someone else can go and sign Kyle Edwards. I mean, let's face it, Lazar jogging back for goals against West Ham and Charlton was not a good look. So probably Ethan Bristol or T-Mac at left back over him isn't such a bad thing. But it is worrying. We named 16 players against Stoke. If that doesn't worry you, then you well and truly do have your head in the sand. Because how can you not be worried that on the opening day of a season, we can't name a full squad. You can say what you like about, oh, but we've got academy players we can use. They're clearly not to the standard if Paunovic isn't going to pick them for the game. We named 16 players and it's the first weekend. You can't tell me that all 16 of those players as well are going to go the entire season without a single knock or an injury. Look at last season. Laurent and Rinomoto were dead on their legs by the end of the season. That's why we tailed off. It's not to do with tactics and this and that. They were knackered because the same players had to play week in, week out because we didn't have the depth last season. And we have worse from that depth this season. We don't have Estevez anymore. There's no Semedo. So unless we can bring someone in between now and the window closing at the end of August and Christ, I hope we can, because these academy lads, bless them, they're teenagers. You can't, as good as Femi Aziz has looked in pre-season, you can't expect Femi Aziz to play 46 games of a full championship season when that was his league starting debut. I know he'd come off the bench before, but you can't expect Ethan Bristow to play 46 games as our first-choice Left back, or you you don't want as well T-Mac to have to play the entire season at left back. I mean, let's be honest, T-Mac is a bigger fan than either of us. He would play any position that <laughs> Palnovich tells him to on the pitch. But it's not what you want. And the harsh reality is, if these are the players we're having to put out, we get one injury. As I was saying to you before we started, if Swift gets injured currently, we're down. Because then there's just no one to come in for him. We only have senior depth in two positions, centre-back and striker, where we've got, because we play one up top, you've still got Puskas on the bench. There's no one to replace Ajaria. There's no one to replace Swift. If Rinomota or Laurent gets injured, there's no senior player to replace them. The fact that Meite's injured, and so now we have to rely on Aziz, highlights it. There's no replacement for Andy Yeardon. Uh, the only other places replacements is centre back, and I mean there isn't even a left back. <laughs> like, <laughs> that kind of says it all. I mean, it, it really does. We don't even have a senior player for some of these positions, so it's kind of like if the EFL's really turning around saying, "But you're fine. You don't need to sign players." It'd kind of be like, "Well, what? What?" Because they made one appearance in the cup last season against Luton. We don't need someone in to replace these players. It's like. Come on, if they're holding us back. But at the same time, when you look at that 1920 summer and we were under an embargo and then they lifted it to say, OK, fine, you can sign some players. And instead of the sensible thing at that point, we'd have gone, OK, we've been allowed to kind of spend a bit of money now. Let's tie down Richards to a contract because 
soon we're going to be out of left backs when Blackett and Abita leave. Let's try and give a deal to Danny Loder because he's a young player who's clearly got some talent. While it didn't work for him at Reading, the talent was clearly there. Let's tie down a lease, say, to a longer deal. But no, what did we do instead? We went, here's seven million for Puskas, is however many million for Zhao as well, and let's bring in some expensive loans. And that may be a reason that the EFL is looking at our current situation and going, if we lift all the restrictions again, what's to stop them going out and spending five million on a left back to replace Richards and just going, oops, we did that, and loading ourselves up with even more debt? Because I can tell you, if we spend 10 million, we're not going to sell someone for 10 million. None of our players are worth 10 million anymore. Swift's older than he was, he's reaching his peak. No one's after Liam Moore anymore. We don't have sellable players other than potentially Ovi Ajaria, but it's it's yet to be kind of seen. It's And it's difficult for fans, and this is where the frustration boils over, and you hope that people don't argue on Twitter. But whenever there's a difference of opinion in Twitter, there's an argument, isn't there? I mean, we Yeah, and, so, you know, so. like you touched on a bit earlier on with regards to the fans, it's, it's disappointing because... I just feel like there's no real platform that you can voice your discontent without having someone jump down your throat with, you know, sarcastic comments. And mm-hmm. it's it's terrible in that sense, because, you know, we are really in a dire situation. But as you said, some people just refuse to see it and they want to paint the picture as if it's rosy and everything's great. And, you know, one thing that I've always struggled with and don't get me wrong, I completely understand the sentiment behind Club 1871. You know, that it was created to provide an area of the ground where everyone who intends to vocally support the club could come together. And, you know, they've done a great job of that. I don't think the club has ever felt so unified during the good times as it has done without that stand. You know, it's been great. But Mm. the problem is, I I don't feel perhaps that the organisers ever thought or truly planned for instances of fan resentment. And, you know, Mm. with regards to, you know, when we had Ron Gawley at the club and, you know, it wasn't going too well. In fact, that season was terrible we would be out in the stand and we'd be voicing our displeasure and we'd be told, oh, no, don't, what are you doing? And, you know, all the swear words under the sun. But at the same time, you know, when Mark Bowen was appointed as the first team manager, we almost ironically decided to back him and, you know, say Mark Bowen's Barmy Army, so on and so forth. And people within that stand were calling us snakes, telling us to F off again. And it's, they really need to make a stance at this point. Yeah, you, you feel like you can't win, but they really need to make a stance at this point as to whether or not, they're, you know, they're, they're happy to pull in the same direction as everyone else when it's abundantly clear that the supporters are merely seeking the best for the club or if they're simply there just to provide an area for positive outlets to the players. Because ultimately, of course, you know, they might want to avoid friction because they've got quite a good relationship with the club at the moment and they might strip the stand away. But, you know, supporting the players and having an issue with the board, they're, they're not mutually exclusive. You can do both at the same time. And I'm sure that there's probably certain players out there, like you touched on earlier on, Tom McIntyre, who probably agrees with some of these worries and concerns. Mm. And, you know, to an extent, as I say, that they probably do actually agree when we start chanting against the board, because at the end of the day, we're not going against the players. We're just saying it as it is. The the club's in Taz. You know, there's mm. no way of dressing that up. You can sit there clapping all you want at the end of the day, but it's not going to sort the fact that we've been running to the ground for how many seasons on a trot now? Yeah, and it well, it's positivity for the sake of positivity sometimes, isn't it? I mean, I I look back to that Paul Clement era with uh, Gourlay where we, um, and I'm not going to say what we were chanting at the time at West Brom, but we were very much anti-Gourlay. And that was the moment we 
we got a fair few fans behind us. It must have been about 50 people at the top of the stand at West Brom that day, chanting about wanting Gourlay out of the club, essentially. And it got picked up by Jonathan Lowe, who tweeted uh, saying in his kind of five things I learned from the game was that uh, resentment towards the board was coming out. Because let's be honest, at the time we'd spent some big money and for what? And you could see the way the club was being run. It looked like we we were spending big to get relegated, which seemed like absolute madness to us fans at the time. And then, and yeah, this is where the issue comes in with Club 1821, isn't it? It's fantastic in the good times, don't get me wrong. And I will always, at, back, at kickoff, I will always back the side. I'm not going to boo them and say, come out onto the pitch. But at the same time, we played Ipswich that season and we went 2-1 down to a goal kick that bounced over Moore and Yeardon and then Yakula slipped over in the rain and it was slotted home to Ipswich, who, if anyone remembers that season, were one of the worst championship teams I've seen ever. Not even kind of that, just that year, just ever Ipswich. And we voiced some discontent and we were told, as you said, to... F off by some of the fans. And it's kind of like, well, what do you want? Do you want blind support in the face of what is clearly a sinking ship? Like, it's like when the Titanic was going down, did people just sit there and go, no, it's not sinking, it's fine. Just cheer on and <laughs> like, keep the band playing and, and we'll get afloat. You can't just be positive for the sake of being positive when a situation is so obviously negative. And I know we're one game into the season here but there has to be an element where if this is still going on in the season if we're losing games 3-0 to sides that we shouldn't be in this division as it goes further the fans have to be able to make their voices heard you can't come out in blind support week in week out when the club you care about because it is this is the club I've been going to see since 99 when I was five years old. Like I, The reason I get so angry and passionate about these things is because this is the club I care about and I don't want to bury my head in the sand. I want the club to do well. I want us to be sustainable. I look at Brentford, as I said, and see the way they've managed to progress and think this should be Reading and think about the Coppel team how fantastically put together it was. The fact we went out, we found bargains like Doyle and Kitson. That was the club that a generation of Royals fans kind of got into football because of. They were the kind of the heroes of your childhood. And now you look at it and it's a nightmare to support at times because we're just being run by people who don't care about the club in the way that Medeski is. And we... We hear nothing from these people. So I'm not saying you go into the stadium and chant sack the board because the last thing we want is the dies to step away from the club, as we previously said. But we just want answers. Hopefully, Star will be able to kind of get something to say. I saw earlier a tweet from Star saying they're going to go out and speak to um, the board at the next kind of meeting that they get, which is coming up soon. So to get any fan questions. But it would be great just to have that communication to say, look, I know times are tough, um, but no matter what happens, we're sticking with Reading FC because the worry is, like I said, if they step away, that that sends Reading down a very worrying path if the dies step away. So 
there needs to be that element of the fans being able to come together and say, we want answers. And it, I genuinely believe if you don't want answers, kind of, well, what's wrong with you? Why is it that your kind of care for Reading is just that 90 minutes on a Saturday? It's, it is the club. It's everything that goes on. You, you want players. Like, look at Tom McIntyre, for example. Everyone can get behind the T-Mac story. Because here is someone who it's like you can see he was a mascot as a kid. He was in the away end at games, goes with, went with his family and stuff. We struggled to sign him to a new contract. Someone who loves the club that much. And the big saga this summer was, will we even be able to sign him down to a new deal? And that is so that should be kind of red flag central to any Reading fan. It summarises the situation, really, doesn't it? Absolutely. But, you know, I, I just think going forward, the issue is in terms of how you address this, because, you know, we, we've seen firsthand on Twitter that a lot of people are just arguing it's going nowhere. It's bickering back and forth. Mm. How do you progress this argument? And th- part of my concern as well is that, say, for instance, if tomorrow we were given a green flag from the EFL, right? OK, you can go ahead and sign some players. We've got three, four bodies into the squad. Does this then get brushed under the carpet until next season when, right, we're in the same situation now, you know, we can't sign any players Mm. and it just keeps going on and on because it it should be something that I think needs to be addressed quite, quite urgently at this point. Definitely, even if Mm. we get those signings in, it can't be forgotten that, you know, we've not heard from this board, we've not heard their intentions for quite some time. So how would you approach both the protest, not necessarily protest, but approach this entire topic as well as, you know, going forward, if we do make signings, what would you then think after that point? Well, the worry, so I'll, I'll discuss the signings first, because I think that's the easier bit. The worry is as well that you've got players like Swift coming to the end of his contract this summer. You've got a lot of players who think Liam Moore's contract expires in the summer, Raphael as well. And so they're then worth nothing to us because someone will come in for John Swift. Like, while someone wasn't going to pay 10 million for Swift, someone sure as hell will pick him up on a free transfer. And so the worry is, again, we get to a summer where actually this time it's not Bulldog and Aluko players we want out the door anyway that are leaving. It's players we want to keep Lawrence out of contract as well. Madness, we only got a two-year deal, it seems. Um it's worrying. There's no simple answer, really. I mean, I'd, I'd love to be able to breathe a bit of positivity in, but you'd hope that because it's on a kind of rolling basis of the um, FFP rules being about you can only incur the levels of debt over kind of a three-year period, we'll be losing because you ignore the COVID year as well. And so we now next summer will have lost the Gourlay transfer window, I believe, which would have created a lot of debt for the club. So we lose that one. And then the years you're looking at are the Bulldog and McNulty summer, the Zhao and Ijaria summer, and then last summer, uh, the summer that's just happened, because obviously you have to ignore the COVID year. Um, Well, no, is that right? Might not be. But either way, so we're moving away from kind of horrific seasons as it were on that three-year rolling basis so what you'd hope is the dice could put a bit of money into the club to be able to renew some contracts would be my hope and that they would start to think smarter i'd hope 
that because of Warriors as well, we brought in Dayong Pang as a um, CEO, and we haven't seen kind of well, who's in charge of transfers? I know we're not making any transfers, but it's kind of like who's doing that scouting anymore? We knew when it was Teverdom, there was that clear kind of job role essentially of Yapstam does all the coaching and essentially says to Teverdon, go out and find me a winger who plays like X and Y. Go find me a left back who can do this and that. And then Teverdon would be in charge of the scouting department. And what I'd hope is that the dies would start to delegate a bit better. My my concerns in the past is they put too much faith in different people, whether it be uh, Ron Gourlay with the fact he'd been at Chelsea meant he knew how to run a club like Reading, which he clearly didn't. I think they put too much faith in Jose Gomez because you even listen to a man now, he genuinely believed he could get that team promoted, yet he barely avoided relegation with the glorious Emiliano Martinez in goal. And it's, you just think, you what? But somehow the only people in Berkshire who believed him were the dies and were happy to spend big to support that dream. They've also, I mean, we don't know the Kia Jurachan link to the club. We don't know what that is. I'd hope that they could just go back to basics and say, we put your faith, find us kind of the next young free transfers out of League One, more signings like Josh Lawrence, essentially. Find those gems, beat other clubs to them, bring them in on a free, and then... When someone comes in for them, like we see with Josh Lauren, while we can't let him go this summer because we have no one to replace him, once we can start making signings again, that is where you have to accept if a bigger club comes in for your player, the right decision sometimes is to let them go for that money. As as we've seen, Swift last summer, apparently there was an offer from Sheffield United of six or eight million. He was injured all season anyway. We might as well have accepted that offer because we'd have had an extra eight million in the bank, but we didn't have because we held on to him and he ended up just sitting on the injury table. I know he's our best player now, but in the kind of harsh terms of it, we might as well have not had him last season because he barely managed to make an appearance. So that's that's kind of my hope would be that we can just start that what this has taught the dies is to try and create a sustainable football club going forwards. It sounds like a dream at this point, doesn't it? But, you know, we've got to keep the faith, see what comes out of the club. You know, it's not very long until the end of the transfer window. And at which point, if we haven't got anyone in, then it's going to be a very, very long season, in my opinion. Uh, <laughs> thank you for joining me, Hugh. Uh, I know it's been quite a depressing chat, but, you know, like we've made quite a theme of throughout this entire episode a lot of the time you can't just brush it under the carpet and forget that it's there you've got to face it head on and discuss it you know not have any kind of explanative you can't you know just shout and swear at anyone who has a different opinion to yourself you've got to discuss it and hopefully that's what a lot more fans do going forward but you know there we go and as I say thank you for joining me and maybe we'll catch everyone soon Hopefully so. And if if any fans do listen and think of anything else they'd like to discuss or would even like to join us for a chat on one of these, let off some steam about the goings on at Reading FC, then we may consider putting out some more of these. But we hope if you have stuck with us the whole way through that you've um, you've enjoyed our rants about the current sorry state of Reading FC. Right, brilliant. But yeah, take care, everyone, and thank you for listening.
Cheers.